Well, after having a, a break for a couple of weeks, what a joy it is for me to be back here among you all, to be ministered by you and to minister to you. Um, it is indeed a blessing for me to be back. And I'm looking forward to be used by God um, for the next year with greater capacity to glorify Him and to edify you. And if this is not great blessing enough and joyful enough, what a joy it has been, um, the series that we've been going through for some time. For those of you who were not with us, um, we... Um, during the summertime, we paused in a teaching on um, Colossians, expository preaching on Colossians, and we've been going through, if you like, an educational journey of what the Scripture teaches on church life. The title of this series that we've been going through is Our Call to the Local Church. Our call to the local church. And as much as I am eager to go back and resume the teaching on the, on the wonderful book of Colossians, but I am somewhat convicted to seal this series with just that one final message to reinforce some points, uh, add some finishing touches. And this is the last sermon, I promise you. The last sermon on uh, on our local church series. This is the grand finale, if you like. And so, if I would like you to put on your thinking cap and enjoy this final one more ride, and then we'll resume the Book of Colossians next time, Lord willing. Now, what is this sermon about? I'm glad you asked. Um, it's God's will for the local church. God's will for the local church. Three implications, if you like, regarding God's will for the local church. And I want to quickly begin um, uh, with the first point. So the first point goes like this. It is God's will for every believer to belong to a local church. Sounds like a broken record, right? Um but I do want to be clear with you for the very last time in this series. If you're a brother or a sister who's not convinced yet, I do want to plead with you using the Word of God that you've got to belong to a local church. A local visible church as distinct from the invisible church. Again, what is the difference between the two? Well, the invisible church is a large community of all those who are blood-bought saints of God across the world. The invisible church comprises of all the citizens, of your life, if you like, that belong to the kingdom of God. All the residents of God's kingdom that make up the invisible church. Now, just like any well-organized kingdom, God in his sovereignty broke down this kingdom, his kingdom, into communities. And each community is a local church. Every local church is a home to a very specific group of redeemed saints. A home where families rest, where they find their sense of belonging, and well-being, a local church, if you like, is, is, is a window, a glimpse to see what our life in heaven would look like. How is this the case? Well, every local church is a home to a very specific group of people and are governed by God's rules in a very specific way. And when individuals belong to a specific church and call that home, then they get to exercise within their own communities. Each group 
of Christians exercise within a community the love of one another, the forgive one another, and I apply all the rest of the one another commands in a very specific way, in a tangible way that is observable by a watching world. And thus, in a very specific way, the statement that Jesus made in John 13, verse 35, where he says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This statement then can be lived out in a very specific way. So the local church is where the invisible church made visible. And if you want to participate in this, you've got to belong to the local church. And you bet it is God's will for you to belong to a local church in order for you to obey all these one another commands. But furthermore and beyond this, I want you to think of something very important. You know how Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church? How did he go about building his church? You know how? By planting local churches. The point is this, Jesus is the founder, he's the builder and the owner of all biblically recognized local churches. Let's see some of the scriptures that attest to his truth. To the local church of Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says this, For you, brethren, became imitators, that's the local church of Thessalonica, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. Not of the invisible church, imitators of the invisible church, no, the churches. There are many, many churches. So these are local churches. And Please note the preposition in that verse, of God in Christ Jesus. Who owns those local churches? They're owned by God in Christ Jesus. Again, Romans chapter 16, verse 16. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Again, the proposition here of indicates that the churches are owned by Christ. Christ did not just plant an invisible church and just let it run, and he does not claim ownership of local churches. He does own local churches. So Jesus is not just the builder and the owner of the universal invisible church, but of all local churches. And by virtue of ownership, and the fact that he's the builder of every local church, don't you think that it is his will for every soul that he saves to belong to a local church. Well, this is why he built him, right? He's, he built him for you and me. Now there's so much more to be said in this subject and we can go further. I've got so much that I wanted to say, but I've got to remove all of them. And, and I, but I trust, I trust that by now, and having gone through what we've gone through and the series that we've gone through with this, that we all know and convince in our hearts that local church is not a man-made idea. It's God's design. I trust that we all understand this, that it is God who plans local churches and owns them. So it is the will of God for us to belong to local churches. But I, but I want to hurry and I want to move to my second point. And, and now, by way of transitioning, <clears throat> I want to ask you this question. Have you ever asked yourself, why is this the case? <clears throat> what, do you, what do you mean? What I mean is this. Have you ever thought, why is it that it's God's will for you 
as a Christian to belong to a local church. What's the purpose of this? Now, I'm not talking about um, Sunday morning service and why you come to Sunday morning service and what's the purpose of this. We'll talk about this, in fact, later on in the third point. But I'm, I'm talking about what is God's will? What is his intention to institute, to establish, design something like local churches? What's the purpose of local churches? Because wouldn't it be crazy to make such a bold statement and to say, hey, we must belong to local churches. And yet, we, we, we don't know what the point of our existence as a church is. Don't you think it will be something crazy, right? And, and, and I don't want, and I trust that we don't want to be crazy people, right? So there's no point going about saying, yes, we've got to belong to a local church. Yes, it's God's command to belong to a local church. And yes, we've got to love one another because then you've got to do this in a local church. Yes, yes, yes. And, okay, sir, why? Why is God doing this? What's his purpose of the existence of local churches? Why? Well, to answer this question, let me help you by asking another question. What is it that we as a church can do here on earth that we can't do in heaven? Yep. We can sing on earth. But trust me, we can sing much louder in heaven, right? We can, we can pray, we can read the word on earth, but oh, we will see God. We will talk to him face to face. We can fellowship with the saints here on earth, and that's great and wonderful to do so. But how is that in the world will be ever compared to fellowshipping with sinless saints in heaven. And the list goes on. Right? And God could have taken us, all of us, the churches in, as a whole, out of this painful process of sanctification into an instant glorification where there will be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more sin. But why? Why wait? What's the point of experiencing pain? Are you tracking with me? I mean, if, if the purpose of the church, let's say, is to sing, well, how could it be that God would still keep us here on earth? We might as well just, he would have just launched us into eternity where we can sing much louder, much clearer, and no one will ever whinge about my, my singing abilities, Right? If, if, if it's about reading the word and understanding the word, oh, I'd love to see at the feet of the Apostle Paul as he exposits uh, the book of Romans. Better that than to read commentaries, right? Second point. Now about the will of God. The will of God. Second implication of the will of God is, is that the purpose of the local church is the proclamation of the gospel. God gave the local church, every single local church, one singular purpose. Not three, not two, one. And that is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the great commission. That is, is it. We have no other purpose on earth but the very purpose of why Jesus came to earth, which is to seek and to save the lost. It is the very same purpose of the apostles being sent out to seek and to save the lost. And the local churches are the very extension of Jesus Christ and the apostles to seek and to save the lost. In other words, 
There is one main thing we can do here on earth as a church that we can't do in heaven. We can tell hell-bound sinners about the mercy they can find in Jesus Christ. Hey, one day the gates of heaven will be shut closed and no more mercy will be granted. One day sinners will look for mercy and they will not find it. So if we are going to tell them where to find forgiveness, we as a church have got to do it while we're here on earth. It must be done on this side of eternity. This is the reason we remain here on earth and that God has not pulled the pin on us yet. And by the way, it turns out that this reason, as per the scripture, is the primary purpose of our existence. Okay, to be sure, it may be differently worded on the pages of the scripture, but the meaning is still the same. Let me go through some passages quickly. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen: to go and make disciples. Acts 1 verse 8, to be Jesus' witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Philippians 1 5, participation of the gospel. 1 Peter 2 9, we were chosen by God for one thing only. What does Peter say? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. First Timothy 3.15 The church of the living God the pillar and support of the truth. The church is ever meant to be the bearer of the truth, the upholder, the revealer, the beacon of the truth. Please turn with me to Ephesians 3 and verse 8. Start from verse 8. And I want to bring this home. We as a church are called to live and breathe that very purpose. Ephesians 3 and verse 8. Now, the Apostle Paul says of himself, he says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given in order to do what, Apostle Paul? To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Not only to preach Christ, but the riches of Christ. The wonder of Christ. The beauty and the glory of Christ. And not only the wonder and the beauty of Christ, but it says the unfathomable riches of Christ. To preach all that is to be preached on Christ. To preach what cannot be conceived by the mind of man of the beauty of Christ, his matchless glory. And then you drop to verse 10 and he says, do all this so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. What is the manifold wisdom of God? But Jesus Christ, the unfathomable riches of Christ, just another way of saying it. Why? Because who else but Christ is the power and the wisdom of God? Hasn't changed. The manifold wisdom of God are all found in the person of Jesus Christ. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Brothers, this is the purpose of our existence. The manifold wisdom of God found in Jesus Christ. 
to be made known. And if it is to be made known to the authorities and the rulers in the heavenly places, how much all the more to those communities among us, around us. This is the purpose. Where do we get that from? Continue on reading, please, verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternal purpose. Brothers, God doesn't just call you to attend a two-hour service to do your duty as a Christian. No, he calls you to belong to a home, a specific community of believers, having all one Lord, one faith, one purpose. And what is this purpose? To shine a floodlight of the gospel in this dark world so that the hidden beauty of Christ would be revealed through us. This is our singular purpose. Ah, but, but, but I thought the greatest purpose that we could ever live for <coughs> is the glory of God. We exist to glorify God. Let me ask you a question. What would display the glory of God more than a hell-bound sinner who loves his sin, who hates God, to fall flat on his face and worships Christ and says to him, Jesus, be my Savior. Be all in all in my life. What other way would glorify God more than this? And a church, when a church is committed to fulfill her purpose, that is evangelizing to the lost, she is participating in the greatest way of displaying the glory of God. Brothers, while other churches bury this God-given purpose in the rubble of entertaining perishing souls or feeding lost hungry souls with burgers and coffee, giving them coffee, yet we exist to fulfill a need that no other human institution could ever ful fulfill. No other organization would ever match the eternal impact of what we can do here on earth as a church. What does this mean? It means that the church is the only organism on the face of this planet that God entrusted, not so much to meet the physical need of the poor and needy of this world by temporary relief, not so much that God entrusted the church to reform the political culture or the moral culture of this world. No. But to snatch dead souls from their eternal doom. C.S. Lewis says... The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. And if they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. He said it well. John MacArthur. The greatest work in the heart of man, the greatest concern in the mind of God is evangelism. Winning the lost is God's great concern. It is Christ's great concern. Charles Spurgeon. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And on the same way, he has sent his church 
And she's a traitor to the master who sent her if she is deceived by the beauties of taste and art to forget that to preach Christ and him crucified is the only object which she exists among the sons of men. The business of the church is salvation. Close quote. Now, there's nothing wrong with helping the poor and needy of this world. Absolutely not wrong, nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with us praying for peace in the world. And if it's your, if it's having your heart to fight against abortion or safe school program or mowing your neighbor's lawn, um, go ahead and do that. That's, that's great. But we must not lay it as though it is the responsibility of the church. The responsibility of the individual is not the same as the responsibility of the church. For example, dis disciplining um, your children or deciding to marry someone or, or the political party that you vote for. Th these are individual decisions that are made by individual Christians. Sure, the scripture may have bearing upon that, but that is not the responsibility of the church. I want to take this opportunity to address a misconception. There are many Christians because they, they struggle to understand a singular purpose of the church, which is to advance the gospel. Okay? Um, now, they, they get confused between what the responsibility of an individual Christian versus the responsibility of the local church. And, and, and this confusion leads to chaos and even wasting God's resources that are intended for the advancement of the gospel. So I want to address a misconception so we can understand this. A while back, uh, one Sunday after I've preached, there's a stranger who came up to me. Um, he came from the streets and, and, and then he, he said to me basically that, that he was broke and he needed some money to get by. He asked for, I think it was $350. And as a pastor of the local congregation, he asked me to tap into the church finance and uh, give him some money. Well, what, what am I meant to do in a lot of what I just taught? Should I have said yes? And if I said yes, because we're, we're loving people, because that's what he said, you guys are church, you guys love people, don't you? He said, well, if, if I said yes to him, then what happens when he calls his other mate and any other mate? And if I gave all the church fund away, would I really be found to be a faithful steward over God's finance? Would that be fulfilling the purpose of God? So what did I say? I said to him, um, look, as, as a citizen uh, of this land, if, if you would provide me with solid evidence that you're broke, um, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll tap into my own personal account and I'll, I'll, I'll pay for food consumption, your food consumption for a month or something like that. Uh, that was my personal conviction at that time. That's okay. But in no way would I have tapped into the church fund in order to meet an unbeliever's need. That's not why the church exists. Why? Because if the church's money, effort, service as a church, not an individual, we talk about it as a church, if it's not given primarily to advance the gospel, then how would we ever be found uh, as faithful church to Jesus Christ. Uh, we must understand that any effort spent with the gospel is not primarily, the focus is a wasted effort as a church. Well, what about if we just add a little bit, just a little bit of a social gospel? You know what a social gospel is, right? Or, or perhaps just a little bit of involvement in social reformation, like maybe perhaps humbly 
uh, opposing the LGBTQ activists or protesting, you know, against the feminist movement, something like that, as a church. Well, as individual, again, if you're pressed in your heart to do so, great, that's good. In fact, I will question if we are truly uh, godly people, godly citizens, if none of us involved in at any level against these things that are going on. But to put that on the church, even a little bit of that, side by side with the proclamation of the gospel, is to say, God, that purpose that you've given to the church is just not good enough. Uh, this purpose of yours, God, it just needs a little bit of cosmetic change. It, it, it will be like, you know, looking at the painting of Mona Lisa and, and he would say, man, if her nose just changes a little bit, um, it, she will look even better and you bring a paintbrush and you start painting it. What would happen? You will smudge the painting rather than adoring it. And do you know what the danger is? If we start negotiating with that purpose that God has given us? I mean, think about it. We're still on this side of eternity. We've got limited resources. So any addition to the gospel proclamation is directly a diminishing of our effectiveness to fulfill that purpose that God has given us. And you know what will ultimately lead? It will, the inevitable would happen that we would compromise our obedience to God's will in fulfilling our purpose. Number one, first implication of God's will for the church is that we've, each Christian ought to belong to a local church. Number two, the primary purpose of every church, every local church, is to proclaim the gospel. Now, if this is the purpose to proclaim the gospel, that is the primary purpose of the existence of the church, right? And what's the point of, you know, all this biblical counseling, corporate worship, Bible studies, you know, and everything else that we do. What's the point of all of that? We might as well just all day long stand at a street corner every day and just hand our gospel tracts and, and preach a gospel. What's the point? Well, w without corporate worship, biblical counseling and fellowship, without all of that, then we know we're not going to be edified, right? And guess what happens when we don't? get edified while we proclaim the gospel at the slightest heat of persecution <clears throat> our hearts would melt away with fear without regrouping regularly in our public gatherings we won't have the strength of Christ to endure right our participation in the gospel will eventually fade away we need our corporate worship. Why? To be able to endure, to keep going, fulfilling that purpose. So my third point, it is the will of God that our regular commitment to corporate worship is our edification. We'll unpack this. We'll help you understand what this means. Basically, it means that our public gathering of the believers, the getting together, is our feeding time. So the primary purpose of the church is the proclamation of the truth, but the purpose of our assembling together is primarily for the edification of believers. This is what the scripture teaches. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says, When you assemble... Church assembles. Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Corporate worship 
is primarily for the exhausted and weary soldiers of the army of God to be fed, to be nourished, to be healed, to be strengthened. Again, there is another misconception where Christians are confused between feeding ground and a battleground. And then they say, well, since the purpose of the church is a proclamation of the gospel, then our corporate gathering must be given to accommodate for unbelievers. And they go as far as saying that our worship, singing, and sermons must appeal to the lost. We must somehow reach the lost and attract them and invite them and keep them in the church. And they use so many gimmicks in order to do this. Want to attract unbelievers and keep them here. Now I want to pause so that um, I don't want you to misunderstand me. If you are an unbeliever and you are here, oh, you are very much most welcome. In fact, we entreat you to come to our corporate worship. We plead with you to attend all of our gatherings, except our members' meeting. <laughs> all right? We want you to hear our singings, to, to listen to the sermons. Listen, there's no better place for you than to be here, hearing the gospel week in and week out, and to see the supernatural work of God and his gospel lived out among the saints. There is no better place. Full stop. But Christians, <clears throat> the corporate worship, when we get together, is primarily your feeding time. It's a time when you're fed. More, than, more important than anything else. This is it. This is, this is what drives everything. You've got to be fed. You've got to be fed. Now, how are we fed? <clears throat> we are fed in three ways, in this exact order. Now, you have to pay attention and remember those orders, this order. In this order, this is how we are fed. First, and of highest importance, the Word of God. Second, is the Word of God. Third, guess what it is? The word, the word, the word. This is how we are fed in exact order. We well, can flip it if you want. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 13 Paul says, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. The Word of God must permeate everything that we do, everything we do in our public gathering. It must be threaded right through and reflected in the songs we sing, interwoven in our public prayers, preached in the sermons, and there is nothing that we do as a church when we get together that is not governed by the Word of God. Again, another scripture that attests this truth is Colossians 3 verse 16. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So when we sing, it's, it's not so much about the music. You know, in the New Testament, there's nowhere it's commanded that we have to use instruments as we worship. But it's about singing. And even singing, according to these verses, no more than verbalizing the very word of God, the word of Christ. 
music ought not to be too loud to overshadow the words that we sing. It must support it. It must be just only enough to invite people to sing, but no way to overshadow the words or people's vocals. When we pray in, in, in our public gatherings, it is not so much about hyper-ecstatic emotional stimulus um, only so that a person would look godly. It's not about this. And most definitely, if it's about the word, then it's not about very hard and lengthy words that 70 or 80% of people would not understand. No. But even in our prayer, publicly, the word dictates what to pray and how to pray. So the word dictates for us that in our public, that the, the prayer will become a public declaration of our need for God. Or for example, when we call him in our assembly, you find that we call him our father. Not my father, our father. It's not about I, it's about we. Where do we get this from? It's the word. And our preaching, what's our preaching about? Oh, it's not about entertaining the hearers. Some people say to me, Wes, you're not so much funny when you, when you preach. We don't see you making jokes. Well, preach, I'm okay with that. That's fine. I'm, I'm okay with that because preaching is not about telling funny jokes or uh, lengthy emotional stories that make people cry or make them feel good about themselves. What's the preaching about? Please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4, and we read from verse 1. Read verse 1 and 2. And Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing his kingdom, tell them funny jokes. Is that what it says? Or give them lengthy emotional stories to make them cry. Entertain them. What's he saying? Preach the word. And in preaching the word, what are we, what are we, what are we to do? Here, he tells you, when I say preach the word, this is what I mean. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. We preach the word precisely to be true to the word with clarity so that people would understand the word and when they do and they apply it, they are edified. Well, finally, just to come to an end, I want to um, share with you a, a metaphor that most suited to connect these three points together. That these three implications of God's will for the church. First, God's will is for every believer to belong to a local church. Second, it's God's will that the primary purpose of the church's existence is to proclaim the gospel. And number three, our assembling together is for the edification of the saints. Now, what's the metaphor? And by the way, this metaphor is sprinkled all over the New Testament. It's not my uh, invention. Now, to be a Christian, 
as we know, is to be a soldier in God's army. I did say this many times because I love this metaphor. And let me um, show you again scripture that says this. Colossians chapter... Colossians says, for he rescued us, that's chapter 1 verse uh, 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And Ephesians says, put on the full armor of God. This is, this is military language. Brothers, again, we need to be reminded of this over and over again. Christianity is not meant to be a walk in the park. It's not a picnic. It's meant to be a war. And it seems like because we live in a 21st century, in, in a developed country like Australia, we, we tend to forget this reality, that this is a war, brothers and sisters. We live in a war zone. There is blood to be shed, enemy to be subdued, hostages to be set free, a battle to be won. Now, what good is it if a soldier that belongs to an army without belonging to a unit? And he's just floating around from one unit to another. How useful would he be to, to the commander-in-chief? When, when that soldier is kind of lost in the battlefield without a home base to belong to. No. When God enlisted you in his army, he intended to plug you into a cohort unit with fellow soldiers where you interlock elbows, fight together in a camaraderie. It's God's will for you to belong to a local church. Let's get our focus right. But now, every army in the whole world, where they have a commander-in-chief, the commander-in-chief's one purpose only is to do what? It's to win the war. Right? To win the war. Yes, there will be soldiers in the base cooking and cleaning. There are others that would be delivering ammunitions to the frontliners. There will be jet fighters or some, whatever it is. But they all have one purpose. Winning our spiritual war. That's the purpose. To prevail over the gates of Hades and advance the kingdom of God. And how do we do this? Proclamation of the gospel by the power of God until we see all lost souls around us getting saved. That's the purpose of this war. So, so much about those Absurd monks who are fighting a war that God never intended for them to fight. But what do you do when, when you give in to too much combat fighting and your spiritual body is disfigured? What do you do when you go through sleeplessness and fatigue and emotional stress as we're agonizing as a church, what do we need? You know what we need? We need healing for our spiritual wounds. We need to strengthen our spiritual muscles to be fed with spiritual good nutrition. And your gym, brothers, is a corporate worship. Your base, soldiers of Jesus Christ, where you would find rest and revitalization, your hospital wounded soldiers is the assembly of God's people. But be honest and deeper, and you look into this hospital, your healings, your strengthening and spiritual good nutrition that you would get is the word of God, the word of God. We've got to eat it. Yes, we've got to sing it. We also got to enjoy it. We've got to fill our mind with his word. 
We've got to speak it to one another, apply it, obey it, and live it out in our lives. This is God's will for the local church. Every believer must belong to a local church. The primary purpose of the church is evangelization, but our assembling, the primary purpose is edification. And it is this structure, it is this structure that ought to permeate all our decision makings and nothing else, this structure alone. Whether the budget of the church, how we ought to spend and use the finance of the church, where we worship, how we worship, whether we should rent a building or buy a building, it has only to do with this structure. This structure we hold on to. All right. I think we, we come now to the end of this series. And I, I know it's rather more teaching than preaching, but we are in a desperate need to make sure that we adhere to God's will, right? We have to adhere to God's will. And it was paramount for us to be reminded of this truth. Well, let's bow our heads and worship together. Um, Lord God, we thank you. Your word is clear as to what you call us to do in our lives and how you want us to be committed to a local church. Thank you, Lord, for such design that you had in mind of local churches and we pray that saving grace bible church would not steer even one inch away from it from her commitment to your primary purpose and that is to evangelize to the lost and we pray lord as we assemble together that as much as it's okay to talk about the weather and the sports and what we did in our holidays and, and all the rest of it. But Lord, we pray that the primary purpose, which is the edification of the saints, may be present and may be the intention and the primary focus of our discussions together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.